0: We're in the book of Luke. We're in the book of Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 21. Before I get into that, um, I kind of forgot to do this earlier, Um, but if you are new here to Redeemer Fellowship, we have these blue cards in front of you. If you don't have any in front of you, we have some in the back when the service is over. If you don't mind filling this out, either for you or for your family, uh, and we have a gift for you. We have a coffee cup. We also have a. You can. Uh, we have a book that we would like to give you as well as a free gift. And the other side is just for fun, just to kind of get to know your personality a little bit. It's got some questions like, do you like the beach or the mountains and things like that. So uh, that's kind of fun. And uh, so don't feel like you have to fill it out unless you want to. But if you don't mind telling us about yourself, we really appreciate that. Um, and there's also a gray card in the back on that table back there in front of the wall. We call it the wall. Um, and it's just a gray card that's about volunteering. And if you've become a Redeemer or uh, and you're like, how do, I, how do I volunteer? How do I serve here? Uh, there are a few examples that you can choose from, but there's three different blocks that you can kind of fill in. And if you have, like, if what you want to volunteer isn't on there, then put it on the block and maybe we'll start something uh, so you can serve in that way. Uh, hope, we we want to be a church where it's not like. You, we want you to volunteer, but then it takes forever for you to actually volunteer. We want you to be able to volunteer as quickly as possible. Um, and so please fill out that card and, and leave it on that table or give it to me or, or to Pastor Denton or Pastor Robert or someone like that. Or someone that you know that's a member here and they'll make sure to give it to one of us. We want to make sure we get you connected. So Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 21. Now, now Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully strengthen herself, and when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. He laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. The ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people. There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, do not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for eighteen years, be loosed from his bond on the Sabbath day? And as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. Verse 18. And he said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took, sowed in his garden, and it grew, and it became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took hid in three measures of flour, and it was all leavened. This is God's word for his people. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to this time in our service where we get into your word. Lord, we ask, Lord, that you would speak to us. We ask, Lord, that you would open our hearts to, to understand, but Lord, also to believe. Lord, that your word would challenge us in the ways that it needs to challenge us, that it would awaken us to the sin in our lives. You would help us to rest in you. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us as well. That our confidence would be in you. Lord, help us, Lord. We pray for those who are not with us, Lord. We pray for them as they are away or at home. Pray, Lord, that you would help them to feel better. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, help them to be uh, uh, strengthened and encouraged to be with the believers, the church. And, Lord, we pray for uh, our fellow churches in Evansville, our fellow churches in Indiana and the United States, Lord, who are continuing to struggle when it comes to meeting together because of, Issues, Lord, uh, either it be COVID-related or maybe it's governmental. But I pray, Lord, that You would strengthen the leadership of that church, that they would be strengthened, and that they would have no fear, but that their their strength and their faith would be in Christ and in You, Lord, in Your plan. Lord, we love You. We praise You in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I have been writing a few different articles for the website about kind of the history of the Reformation, and uh, I just wrote one on John Huston, and. John Wycliffe, and I've been learning, I mean, I've learned this stuff when I was in seminary, but I'm starting to relearn a lot of this, this kind of build up to the Reformation, and the reason why we're, we're doing these articles is because on November the 1st, we're going to have a Reformation service, uh, and, and the sermon will be based off some of the principles and and, and, and theology of the Reformation, and that's, so that's why we're writing these articles, but it's been so helpful just to kind of See God's providence in history and amongst his church, and how he has used certain people to bring forth what ended up happening in 1517. But I've been learning about some of this, just the history going back even back even before 1000 AD and, and looking at Charlemagne and Charles the Great. And so you, you, when you're reading about the, the, the papal authority, and you're reading about the Pope, and you're, you're reading about the Roman Catholic Church, and you're reading about uh, France and England, you're, you're kind of inundated with in the idea of kingdom. What is a kingdom? And the title of our sermon is A Dominion of Grace. A Dominion of Grace. And uh, the main idea is the kingdom of God is the sphere f- the of God's salvation that welcomes the weakest, encompasses the nations, and transforms the world. And for you kids that are in the room... We've been trying to do this every week just to kind of help you as you are young listeners to sermons and, and, and to teaching kind of in a public, formal formal way. I want to give you three words that you can just kind of listen to during the sermon. And ask, when you're on your way home, or you're eating lunch with your family, ask your parents what these three words mean according to the Bible. The three words here are kingdom, salvation, and influence. Kingdom, salvation, influence. And so ask your parents what those three words mean what is a kingdom well the definition of a kingdom is is something that is, is dominant something that uh, that is a is a is a kingdom uh, it's a, a realm which has a ruler it has a dominant figure that runs or rules a a, a group of people and a territory most of us know the idea of a kingdom, not from history, but from Disney, right? You think of Snow White and the Prince Charming and their kingdom, right? Uh, Cinderella and whomever she married, right, and their kingdom. Robin Hood and his his, uh, his battles against King George, King John, and his, the British kingdom. You think of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table and Camelot and King Arthur's kingdom right and when we think of a kingdom again we have a ruler we have a people that that ruler rules over and a territory by which that ruler kind of dominates that's his realm when we think of the Christian kingdom or Christendom that term comes from Charles the Great when Charlemagne became king uh, and actually became emperor of the Holy Roman Empire and seven, well, he actually became emperor at 800, uh, 80, 800. and then became kind of the Christian empire. And when Charlemagne was emperor, he expanded the territory of the empire into Spain and Bavaria and Saxons and Austria, and he conquered the Slavs, and he, he conquered and spread his territory, and he became the ruler of many different people. And he became the Roman emperor. And he treated himself like he was the new Caesar, like he was the new Roman emperor, like Augustus. He became, now the, he became the, the leader of this imperial force in, in Europe. And actually, the Holy Roman Empire became a dominant force, even though it significantly lost a lot of its influence. But it was a kingdom for over a thousand years until 1806. When Napoleon died, Napoleon Bonaparte conquered most of Germany. What is the legacy of Charles the Great? Legacy that his legacy was that really he kind of expanded Christianity, but really what it was is nominal Christianity. It wasn't actual faith and belief in Christ. It was traditions and culture, and not actually faith. But also Charles the Great, he he caused a revival and in, in learning and the arts. When he passed away, kind of suddenly, he didn't really have any, he didn't have any heirs to his throne. And what ended up happening was all of these territory that he had occupied, all the territory of his kingdom, got passed down to lords and dukes. And that's actually started the feudal system of lords and dukes who own large pieces of land. And, and they, they basically, workers of the land, would have to pay the lord income to work the land. And that was the influence, that was the, the, the kind of the, what Charles the Great and his kingdom caused was this horrible system of feudalism. What ended up leading, leading along with all of these, these nations and all these little, these little kingdoms and all these little territories, they ended up, uh, a lot of their, uh, on, of their honor and all their, what they looked to as their, as their ruler ended up being the pope, which led to the Crusades. And other things after that. So the Christian empire, the the empire that Charles the Great started, its influence caused some some pretty significant things, and and actually quite negative things. Like the first crusades that Pope Urban II uh, pushed for, that Christians to take up the cross and strive for a cause that promised not merely spiritual rewards, but material gains as well. So really what the, 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 the kingdom that Charles the Great started and that ended up the popes in the 12th and 13th century ended up ruling over, what, what it influenced was a, it influenced a, a, a nominal Christianity and it caused more the welcoming of land, wealth, and power that in the, even the first crusades was this kind of push to let's go to the Holy Land and conquer more land, let's, let's, let's bring in more wealth and more power. And for too many times, people have considered Christendom or Christianity based off this kingdom and this empire that Charles the Great started. But that doesn't speak of the actual kingdom of Christ. The kingdom of Christ is the sphere of salvation. And so the the point here that I want to make, his main point, is that Christ's kingdom is the sphere of salvation for the weak and a dominion of grace in the world. Not a dominion of power, not a dominion of political conquest, not a dominion of wealth, but a dominion of grace in the world. And the first kind of sub-point here is that a kingdom of salvation is for the weak. Charles the Great wanted to occupy more land and more wealth, and then the popes, when they really kind of run, ran and ruled the, the uh, Christendom, they wanted what more land, more wealth, more power. But it's interesting in the story here, is that Christ welcomes not power, not wealth, but a woman who is disabled. A kingdom of salvation for the weak. Not for the powerful, not for the wealthy, not for the rich. Not for the political savvy, but for the weak. So looking at Luke 13 here, verse 10, Jesus was teaching on the Sabbath. In one of the synagogues. I think this is the last time in the book of Luke that he is ever teaching in a synagogue on the Sabbath. This was kind of the final straw for the Jewish leaders. So in that time, uh you know, they, the synagogue system, you would have a sermon, and, the, and the, there would be a teacher who would teach, like very much what I'm doing right now, and very similar to what Jesus was doing. He was teaching the people who came to the synagogue on the Sabbath. And obviously the Sabbath is a big issue because Jesus had already had issues with the Pharisees and the religious leaders about the Sabbath, right? He was healing on the Sabbath. He was doing things on the Sabbath and they disagreed with, and that caused them to be very angry. The Sabbath was something that had evolved over time before Jesus' coming that added there was this added on more rules and more regulations on what you could and could not do on the Sabbath. So much so that the Sabbath ended up being a day of rest, it ended up being a day of of a lot of stress because there's so many things you had to remember. There's so many things you weren't able to do. I mean, even the disciples were picking what they were picking grain off, uh, off the, off the harvest when they were eating. And the Pharisees had issues with that as well. So Jesus is teaching on the Sabbath. He's in the synagogue and there's a woman. I love how Luke says, behold, behold, pay attention. It's almost like an explanation point. There was a woman. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't ignore her. He addresses her. He calls her out, Luke says. He welcomes her. He speaks to her while he is teaching. He notices her, and he speaks to her. He calls her up. Think of the attitude uh, attitude towards the weak in the ancient world. The attitude towards the weak in the ancient world is not like the attitude towards the weak in our country or in our society today. They would not have centers the disabled. They would not have uh, places where people could go to be cared for and served. They didn't have that in the ancient world. If you were sick, it was probably because you deserved to be sick. Because of your sin. Of your wickedness. So, they would have ignored this woman. They would have walked on the other side. They would not have interacted with this woman. But Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son Almighty, the incarnated Lord, the god man Himself, speaks to her. He addresses her. This says, woman You have been liberated. You have been delivered from your disability. I love how the verb tense there. It's not like you will be. You're you're somewhat there. No, no, you have been liberated. You have been redeemed. You have been uh, uh, delivered from your disability. He even says that he laid his hands on her. Why is that so important? Why is that do- detail so important? Because the Jewish people, the religious leaders in that time, had so much restrictive cleansing laws, they never would have touched a woman who was disabled or had a spirit of weakness or sickness. They would have saw her as unclean. But yet Jesus touches her. The incarnated Lord, that he came and he was human, that he, he touched her. He physically put his hands on her. And immediately... She was made straight. She was immediately made straight. She's been having this disease, she's she's had this condition for 18 years, and Jesus touches her, and immediately it goes away. God's grace, Christ's grace, is more powerful than sickness and demonic influences. Far more powerful. She was made straight, and she what? She glorified God for what happened to her. She has, that, 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 like I said before, that she has been liberated, she's been delivered, there's a completed action, it's a new state. She suffered with this condition for 18 years, and now she is in a new state. She has been liberated, she's been delivered from this disability. Well, obviously, the ruler of the synagogue has an issue with this. He responds, and even says that he was angry. I mean, he was, it's like he was sitting there this whole time. Jesus is giving this teaching from, we don't know where he's teaching, from. let's say he's teaching from Isaiah. He's teaching from Isaiah to the people, right? And this woman comes in, and Jesus heals her, and he is immediately angry. She was immediately healed, she was immediately delivered, and he was immediately angry. And he was extremely upset by what Jesus had done. I even said here that he's been woked by this. Completely wowed by this, because Jesus what healed on the Sabbath, but he doesn't speak to Jesus. He speaks to the people. So basically, he gets up and speaks to the people, ignores Jesus and the woman, and just speaks to the people in the crowd. He says to them, "There are six days in which you must work. Come on those days and be healed." So if you want to be healed, if you want to interact with Jesus, if you want to be delivered by jesus if you want to be healed by his miracles do it on the six days that you work. working but on the sabbath the day of the lord the holy day don't go on that day that day is not appropriate to be healed on that day the sabbath is the day is not the day for liberation or cleansing or salvation or grace the holy day of the lord is the best day to be liberated delivered to receive grace to receive salvation Jesus answers them, not him, but them. So therefore, there's other people in this group of people that agree with the ruler of the synagogue. They've been, over time, just so angry by Jesus, healing on the Sabbath, and they agree with this ruler. So he speaks to them. He knows their thoughts. He's God. He says, hypocrites, basically you actors of godliness, you spies for Satan— does that each of you on the Sabbath unbind your ox and your donkey from their stall and lead them away to be watered? Don't you liberate your animals? Don't you deliver your animals to be then be what? To lead them to grace, to life-giving water? Don't you do that? You do that to animals, beasts of burdens, but you think it's wrong for Jesus Christ to deliver this woman? And he even calls her, what, right, his woman. And it also, I want to say this, when he says the statement like, don't you? He, he, he knows the answer. The answer is yes, they do. It's an affirmative question. Don't you? Knowing that they do, he even says, ought not this woman who is a daughter of Abraham, so this Jew, this Jewish woman, one who's a part of us, she comes from the same culture as we do. She, she, she reads the Torah just like we all do. Whom Satan bounded, behold, 18 years also be unbound from this chain on the day of the Sabbath. So we learn a little bit of information about her. She's a Jew. Also, that Jesus recognizes that her condition is demonic. Satan bound, he says. And I love how he says, I don't know if he says it in the ESV here, but in the the Greek he says, behold. Behold. She's had this for 18 years. Right? He emphasizes strongly how long she has struggled with this. For 18 years she has been bound by Satan with this disability. Don't you think that she also should be delivered from her chains, just like the animals that you untie? Don't you think she deserves grace just as much as you take off your ox and your donkeys and lead them to water? Well, the answer is obviously yes. And it says that they were humiliated by Jesus. They were humiliated. Their hearts are so hardened to Christ's message. Their heart is so hardened to the gospel that Christ offers. And I think this is a warning against, uh, this is a warning for you when you receive hard teaching. I think Jesus presents some hard teaching to them. I mean, he he, he kind of says, he provides these questions to them and they're humiliated by his teaching. And oftentimes a preacher or a sermon humiliates you sometimes. The issue is, are you you open to the rebuke, and is your heart softened to the truth, or is your heart hardened to the truth? For a lot of these religious leaders, Jesus spoke the truth, and their heart was what? Hardened to it. So the adversaries of Christ were humiliated by him, but the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. They rejoiced by what Jesus did. The glorious results of Christ's kingdom. The dominant ruler is Christ. We read in Romans eight nine through eleven. Romans eight nine through eleven. You, however, are not in the flesh, but are in spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. If you're in Christ, you're a part of his kingdom and now a part of the dominion of grace. You're in the sphere of salvation. You have been liberated from your sin, and are in Christ. What does Jesus do? He welcomes the weakest among the people. He doesn't ask for the smartest. He doesn't ask for the strongest. He welcomes and calls out the weakest among the people, the poor in spirit. As Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Who's the us? It's not the religious, the uh, most religious or the, the most knowledgeable about the Bible or the Torah or the law. The us is the worst of sinners. The weakest among us are transferred into his kingdom. The weakest physically, the weakest mentally, the weakest emotionally. Those who are not welcomed in Christ's kingdom are the self-righteous, the proud. The interesting thing you learn about in the history of the Reformation is all the people that believed so much that they were doing what was right according to God were wrong. Why? Because they were self-righteous, they were proud, and they were arrogant. There are popes in hell. And there are criminals in heaven. And there's too many people, especially during the time of the Reformation, that believe, well, because I have this really fancy gown on and this fancy hat i must be part of god's people i'm part of god's kingdom and they were dead wrong why because they were full of self-righteousness and proud and and, and pride and they were proud and those who were, there's no way that person would be in heaven or the people that god accepts and transferred into his kingdom why because his kingdom is full of weak people The second point is this, is a kingdom for the nations. This is, so Jesus kind of says, and we know that this particular uh, teaching in these the parables here, starting in, in verse 18, that go along with what he's already said, because you get the therefore, right? He said, therefore, so the, these, these, these parables go along with what Jesus is saying. So therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests. And the branches, what is like the kingdom of God? Jesus says it's like the seed of a mustard seed. And I think it's interesting here that this, and particularly in Luke, he doesn't identify the mustard seed as the smallest seed. We know that it is one of the smallest seeds. Now, it doesn't seem like Luke is focusing on the smallness of the seed. Instead, he's focusing on the end result of the mustard seed. So a man, he he takes the seed and he casts it into his garden. The word there is he throws it. He doesn't plant it carefully. The the Greek doesn't use that word. He threw it. He casts it into his garden. There's a sense of confidence in his planting of the seed. He's not... He's not, like, you know, making sure of all these different conditions. No, no. He is the man who owns this garden, and he casts his seed. He casts this mustard seed. And what happens to the seed? It grows and becomes a tree. And the birds of the air nested. Not perched. Not not for a moment sat on, but nested in the tree. A mustard seed with good conditions, will grow to 12 to maybe 15 feet tall in a garden. Probably one of the tallest trees that you would have in a garden. And it says that the birds nested there. They found a home there. The birds of the air. All the nations of the earth are included in Christ's kingdom. That Christ's kingdom is not relegated to just the Jewish people, but that all the nations we will be a part of His kingdom. Even it's interesting. Ezekiel actually even uses similar illustration and language to explain this truth. Ezekiel thirty-one, verse six. Always great. We can do a passage from Ezekiel thirty-one, six. All the birds of the heavens made their nest in its bur- burrow, under its branches, and all the beasts of the field give birth to their young. And under its shadow live all the great nations. Tom Hollins in his book Dominion says that the cross of Christ came to serve as the most globally recognized symbol of a God that there has ever been, the cross. The 35% of the world is Christian. Now, again, We can get into all the details of are they really Christians, but Pew Research says that 35% of the global world is are Christians. What's an interesting thing is how diverse that number is. In the 19, early 1900s, More than like, I think it's more than 60 or 70, no, actually over 90% of Christians in the world were in the West. We're talking about England, Europe, and the United States, and Australia. But today, 13.1% of Christians come from Asia alone. 23.6% of Christians come from sub-Saharan Africa. And the largest group of Christians come from South America, not Europe, or America, or the United States. Right now, the Christianity is truly a global faith. It started in the Middle East. You know, the most there's more Christ, there's more Protestant Christians in Nigeria, twice as many Protestant Christians in Nigeria than there is in Germany, which is where the Reformation started. Twice as many Protestant Christians in Nigeria in Africa than there are in Germany. billion Christians live in the Global South. 1.3 billion. That's 61% of Christians live in the Southern Hemisphere. Not in the United States, not in Canada, not in England, not in Europe, but the Global South. South America, Africa, and Asia. 61%. 860 million in the Global North, which would be the Canada and the United States. And only 24% of the people living in the global south are Christians. So since Christianity is young in the global south, it's going to continue to grow. It truly is a dominion of grace. This poor little band of Jesus' disciples who welcomes disabled women, who welcomes sinners, the relatively insignificant, grows to encompass the nations. The promise of salvation for sins, redemption, justification, adoption, are for the world. And the world, and the people of the world, become citizens of this kingdom by grace. The last point here is that a kingdom of subtle transformation. A kingdom of subtle transformation. And we get this last little parable here, and I'm going to be quick here. He talks about the mustard seed, and now he talks about this, this leaven. He says... To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like the leaven. It's like leaven that a woman took, hid in three measures of flour, until it was leaven. It's like leaven. Usually in the Bible, leaven is a negative, used in a negative way, but here it's used in a positive way. A woman takes it, and basically this measure is 50 pounds of flour. She puts leaven in 50 pounds of flour. Very insignificant amount of leaven can't even see it. Puts it in this. And it's encompassed. It, it's, it's surrounded and, and, and by this flower. And it says that it was all, over time, leavened. It rises. This leaven took over all of this flower. And this is talking about the subtle nature of the kingdom. It's hardly noticeable, yet influences the entire mass of the dough. A bit of leaven seems at first to have no impact, but then there's a complete transformation of the dough. It's present, but it's in a hidden form, and it has complete, it overcomes the dove. It talks about the the kingdom of Christ looks so insignificant, but its influence is so subtle. But as we know from our study in Revelations, the kingdom of Christ will encompass and conquer the world. People will never even well, how could this, which started as 12 losers who now become this, this movement which leads to this this kingdom that encompasses and takes over the world 2000 years of influences if you think about the woman this book dominion by Tom Holland talks about this historically that the world especially the western world is saturated by christian concepts a jewish scholar said it's the most powerful of the hegemonic cultural systems in the history of the world christianity let me present some examples. You never would have thought of this as influenced by Christianity. The Me Too movement. You think about Christianity and its influence. What is it told men? It's told men they can't have sex with whoever they want. It tells men that you have to be self-controlled. Restraining in that desire. The ancient world never said that. Ever. Roman Greek culture never, ever said that women were to be used and abused and to have children Christianity said the opposite. Bernard of Clairvaux said to be always with a woman and not to have sexual relations with her is more difficult than to raise the dead. Some of us men can admit that. But what does Christianity say? It doesn't say just let your desires go crazy. It says no. A woman is equal it's created by God, and you are to cherish it. It's regulated, sex. When In the 1960s, when Ralph Glenson started the Rolling Stone magazine, he talked about sexual freedom. And what ended up happening? What was the influence of Rolling Stone in the sexual revolution? Harvey Weinstein. Powerful men taking advantage of women. That is not Christian. It's ancient Greek. It's ancient Roman. Your body, Paul says, is a temple of the Lord. I'm sorry. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you and whom you have received from God. Humanists. you talk talking about no God. What do they talk about? That humans, regardless of your race and your gender, are what? Equal. Where does that come from? God's word. Image of God. The ancient world never believed that. Women were not equal to men men of wealth were were more important and higher up than other people who were slaves or who were merchants? What did Christians do during the Roman Empire? They rescued abandoned infants. Pro-life, the pro-life movement didn't start until Christianity came into the world. The ancient world would have said, if the baby's not wanted, let it die. Pro-choice movements is ancient Greek and ancient Roman It's not Christian. Life, and the value of life, is a Christian concept. Caring for the sick and the poor, educating the masses, science, it's all because of Christianity. In the ancient world, if you couldn't pay for education, you weren't educated. Who cares? The cross... The ancient implementation of torture remains what has always been the fitting symbol of the christian revolution the cross the audacity to use a tool of achieving dominance and striking terror in the people is the tool by which god brings a kingdom into the world that is slowly and influencing and subduing the world isn't that amazing and there's so many people in the world who go oh those christians all they care about is men, all they care about is them. all they care about is pro-life, all they don't care about people. No, Christianity is the concept and the revolution where people matter. Because if it wasn't for Christianity, there would be no Black Lives Matter. There would be no Me Too movement. There would be none of this because people before Christianity could care less about the weak and could care less about the poor and could care less about God chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. What's interesting about—brings us to an end of this. We live in a world where many people, especially if you're young, especially if you're in college, you—the the idea that you're weak is a comes with a label of, of identity. I'm weak. I define myself as weak. I define myself as either I'm full of anxiety or I'm weak because I, I identify with a, a group of people that are weak. Defined by your challenges, I think the way to say this. But if you're a Christian and you're a part of the kingdom of God, you're liberated by Christ. You're delivered by Christ. You've been transferred into the kingdom of Christ. Amen. Christ in you has enabled you to be to more and more die to sin, die to fear, and live to righteousness, holiness, and joy. You have Christ's strength to endure, to love, to hope, and to rejoice. You're part of the kingdom of God. Too many of the people in this world just identify with their challenges and identify with their weakness. They need the grace of Christ. They need the dominion of Christ. They need to understand that there is a good news that welcomes the weak, that welcomes the poor in spirit, that welcomes people who have past that they're ashamed of. Christ's kingdom welcomes them. Welcomes. I want to read this real quick because I have a little bit of time. It's a prayer by um, Puritan Prayer by Ezekiel Hopkins. It's called, Your Kingdom Come, Here and in Heaven. Lead us not into temptation, nor allow us to be assaulted and buffeted by the wicked one. Or if, in, in your all-wise counsel and purpose, you permit us to be tempted. Yet deliver us from the evil to which we are tempted. Let us endure temptation as our affliction, but let us not say yes to them nor make them our sins. Thy kingdom come, Lord, raise, Lord, enlarge, Lord, establish your kingdom. For yours is the glory, and unless you want your glory confined only to heaven, or count the praises and eternal hallelujahs of saints and angels, enough adoration for your great name, Lord, have regard to this your poor, decaying kingdom. For only in it and in heaven is your glory celebrated. And if you leave this kingdom to be overrun by the agents and ministers of the devil and of idolatry and in the profane game ground, here so as to push you off the throne, would that not be given your glory to another which you have promised not to do? Lord, if you are still the same God, your essence is eternal. Your attributes will never change. Your power, wisdom, and mercy are the same ever. So in your mercy, grant us the same favor. Amen. If you are full of fear, I don't care what it is. I don't care if it's COVID 19. I don't care if it's who wins the election. I don't care what it is. If you are full of fear, that is not godly. Mm-hmm. You are part of the kingdom of Christ. Be enabled by that strength. Amen. Please do not walk around in this fear. You have been enabled by the power of Christ. I'm not saying be dumb. I'm not saying be reckless. I'm not saying have an opinion. But I'm saying that we are part of the kingdom of Christ, the dominion of grace. He is the dominant ruler in this kingdom. He has got everything under control. He is the Lord. He died for you. He loves you. He cares for you. Trust in him, please. Trust in his sovereignty. Have joy in Christ. Recognize that Christ will give you the wisdom that you lack. You ask for it. Trust him. Do not be in fear. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you that we... Been, if we are Christians in this room that you have transferred us from the dominion of darkness to the dominion of grace. Praise you Lord for that. For anyone in this room that is struggling, Lord, to recognize that they are in the dominion of grace, that they are ones who have been welcomed by Christ Jesus, that they have been adopted as his children into his kingdom. Lord, give them strength. Enable them, as, as the Western, Western Confession says, to, to fight sin more and more but to be strengthened in righteousness. Lord, for anyone in this room who's not a follower of Christ and never put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, I pray that you would uh, change their hearts. As Jesus welcomed this woman, that you would welcome them into your kingdom, Lord, that you would give them the faith that they lack, and you would give them uh, the, the love for you that they lack. or save them. Redeem them, Lord. Deliver them as you deliver this woman. May you use this church, Lord, who is very insignificant in the world. May you use us, Lord, as this leaven, as this mustard seed, Lord, to influence the world in subtle ways. You would grow your kingdom, Lord, through your church. We love you, Lord. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. We're going to take up the Lord's Supper. Uh, the way that we do this here is uh, when you get your bread, you get your cup. Don't take it. Go to your seat, wait for us all to receive it. Uh, The other thing that this is, uh, this is for believers.